to One of Two Hundred, the independent uh, New Zealand media and politics podcast. I'm joined by my co-host Philip this evening for this midweek cast. How's it going? Good, good. Still, still alive. We're all we're all making it through tough times. So, what more could you ask for, really? Yeah. Um, well, one thing we can ask for is a fantastic guest this evening. Um, we've got Marco de Jong uh, from London, London, England, the UK, Oxford. Um, see, I've already scrambled it up uh, to talk about RIMPAC, current uh, series of military exercises, uh, or insert euphemism here, uh, occurring up near Hawaii. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Um, it's really nice to be here. Um, it's early morning after the heat wave here in, in England, and it's yeah, scrambled here as well. So we're trying <laughs> to get through this together. Hey, just for uh, people who might not have come across your work, do you want to give us a, a quick introduction, um, kind of where you come from, what your area of expertise is, uh, and we'll, we'll lead in from there. I'm a Pacific historian, um, New Zealander, proud Samoan. Um, my work focuses on the history of the environmental movement of the Pacific uh, with a focus on kind of the anti-nuclear movement within that and then moving into climate in recent times. Yeah. Uh, my work also I'm involved with Tekuaka, New Zealand Alternative, um, which provides kind of a independent and progressive take on New Zealand's foreign policy. And as part of that, part of the Cancer Rumpack Coalition, um, which is a you know, broad-based group of NGOs in Aotearoa opposing New Zealand's continued involvement in um, imperial war-making. And that's what's brought me here tonight, this morning. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I think, you know, one, one of the first things when Eliana was talking to us about uh, having you on the podcast to, to talk about this is how little coverage has been of it this, this time around. Like, there's been just very little in the media. You know, I think there's a petition out there. Um, there have been a, a couple of stories here and there, but I was thinking back to 2020. Because um, this happens biannually, do you say biannually for every two years? Yeah, biannually. Yeah. Um, and I remember, yeah, there were a couple of politicians involved. They got like some a reasonable amount of screen time for for this kind of topic. Uh, there are a few stories. I think uh, there's something on the spinoff, but I haven't really seen it covered this time around. Yeah, that's. I have noticed that too. Although I'm obviously currently out of Aotearoa. Uh, what has come out and what's been shared has been very uncritical. Uh, people haven't picked up and there hasn't been as much buzz. I think the COVID context in 2020 provided a particular kind of flashpoint for exposing a new side of how pernicious the military industrial complex can be and how it doesn't contribute to uh, welfare or security. And in that case, it was health security and imperiling you know, small island developing states, which do fortunately have vulnerable healthcare systems to outside influenza in ways that have historic parallels. Um, and it was deeply ironic. Uh, so that, that for activists, that provided a, a way into that, that was picked up more broadly. But I think it was also kind of reflective of now the way that um, the kind of geopolitical dimensions of the world have changed, the, obviously the war in Ukraine, and there's less of a People are having to work harder to make peace arguments. And there's also this uh, narrative that's pushed by superpower rivalry that, you know, that the Pacific will be, is, is the new, the new battleground, the American lake again. And so I think that also contributes to the kind of vacuum about RIMPAC in, in the media. Yeah. I think, you know, something we touched about, um, in our current events pod here and there as it's popped up in terms of this shift in narrative, especially quite rapidly over the last six months, uh, around the way that Labour MPs uh, and the media even talk about this stuff. And at the same time, you've had Ardern uh, on the world stage doing the non-proliferation, uh, de-escalation talk, uh, which branding-wise uh, is, is fantastic. It's good to hear those words on the world stage. But in the meantime, you know, we've got these 
military uh, engagements. We've uh, signed up to the Blue Pacific Treaty. There's this talk about the Pacific as a theater of war, um, like more and more frequently. Uh, we've had the stuff between ostensibly China, the Solomons, and Aussie. Um, and a lot of that has been uncritical as well. There, there doesn't seem to be much, as you say, in the way of what is the the peace narrative here? How, how do we make this more present, more apparent? Yeah, that's obviously fantastic analysis. I feel that it's, it's precisely that. You know, New Zealand's able to bank on its kind of um, international liberal world image to talk about demilitarization. And Jacinda has said in the media, kind of no less than four times and across the Pacific Islands Forum, as well as in NATO and a trip to Australia, about how New Zealand doesn't want, A, to seek new military alliances, doesn't want to pursue militarism, is against the militarization of the Pacific, and yet we're impact. And so there's this massive gap between, you know, rhetoric and action in a way that is very disheartening. And it, I think if we draw on some historic examples, uh, I think it's actually probably even more pernicious than even that lets on. Because if we look at um, the kind of mythos that allows us to have that um, liberal world image, it's a lot of it's based in our, our work in our New Zealand's work in decolonization in the 60s, and then also our anti-nuclear image, um, both of which, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> a kind of critical analysis of those will tell, will tell us that um, those two were examples of um, talking in one way and acting in another way, you know. So the way that, for example, the Cook Islands became in contact with free association with New Zealand was able to be done, um, that continued colonial relationship, um, irrespective of how it's sold, uh, was able to be pursued off the back of Samoa's independence, which was seen by the international community as um, very good work that New Zealand did. And then our anti-nuclear position was kind of bought at the expense of the Pacific's nuclearism because the Longy government in 1984 signed up um, to a watered-down nuclear-free treaty that was brought, brought by the Hawke government of Australia, uh, who whom had colluded with the, uh, the US to uh, pursue a treaty that didn't impinge upon its uh, freedom of navigation or any of its kind of nuclear interests. So if, if, we, if we stack those historical examples, we can see that in the current moment, when a new Australian Labor Party has come to the table uh, in New Zealand, is kind of there as well, and they're turning up to the Pacific Islands Forum and we're talking about climate change all of a sudden, uh, we can see that maybe this is the new way of securitizing the region whilst talking differently. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example. Thanks, Marco. Obviously a huge amount of of uh, information there to kind of get through. Um, I think it's awesome that you bring a kind of historical uh, lens to it. So maybe for for people less um uh, military-minded or who pay attention to the securitization stuff less, which probably would be a fair number of our listeners. Um, could you shoot through, you know, a, a brief history of RIMPAC, how it's functioned um, as a tool of imperialism, if that's a word you want to use, or securitization, um, I guess it's its function in, in geopolitics and what it's meant over the years? Sure. So RIMPAC was started in 1971. It's obviously short for the Room of the Pacific. You know, war, it's the war exercises uh, between, I think there are 20, upwards of 20 nations participating in its, what's that, 50, 51st iteration every second year. So it's whatever iteration. Um, <laughs> 25,000 personnel will take part, um, 38 ships. Four submarines. I have this in front of me, just just for our listeners. <laughs> Nine land forces, 170 aircraft, and so New Zealand's participation in that, and what it looks like in 2022, is one. We're sending one ship, a team of divers, and and yeah, that that ship is the our HMNZS Aotearoa. The thing about this, which is a bit different this year, is that um, New Zealand 
historically has, has kind of the the narrative is that is that we don't participate in some of the more egregious or provocative aspects of RIMPAC. So historically, you know, that meant shelling Kahualave, the one of the sacred Hawaiian island, um, throughout the 70s, uh, which spawned a massive movement in Hawaii uh, against against RIMPAC militarization and the destruction of Hawaiian land. Wait, can you and, rewind just for a second? They were doing what in the 70s? Uh, I think was it, this it, part uh, of the exercises? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you, if you want to see something particularly egregious, you can Google Sailor Hat. I think it's uh, I think yeah, Sailor Hat, which is um, when they tried to replicate the kind of the blast radius of a nuclear bomb using conventional dynamite. I think they stacked like maybe it was up to one kiloton. Now, now we're really testing my recall, but they, yeah, um, shelling of Kahualave, um, which in Hawaii was a kind of um, navigation training school and center for traditional religion, uh, be- became shelled, you know, for, for decades. And after having been stolen and being a cattle ranch, and it's completely ruined the ecology of that island. Um, so that's that has been a flashpoint historically, but obviously um, it's not limited purely to the taking of that particular island. And in Hawaii, RIMPAC is an absolute scourge, as well as the US military presence on unceded Hawaiian land. Yeah, so oh, where was I getting at? So New Zealand's involvement is the narrative is that we don't participate in the, um, in the more egregious, yeah, provocative. Uh, excesses of the military-industrial complex. But in this year, uh, for the first time, New Zealand will be part of the um, carrier strike group in a combat commander role. Uh, so some of our staff for the entirety of the duration will be on a US um, warship called the USS Mobile Bay. And I think a lot of commentators see this as kind of stepping up our interoperability with the US, our participation in kind of complicity in their war making by stealth. So whilst we're talking about demilitarization of the Pacific, we're playing a more active role in in continued American imperialism. Us as a you know, as a settler nation, uh subjugating indigenous peoples elsewhere in the Pacific and propping up yeah, US imperialism. Yeah. Which yeah. is hell bent on on setting us all to to our graves through, you know, this increasingly fraught international context where you know everybody's talking about china and the pacific yeah yeah and i mean a you know a, a bellicose um america's american hegemonic state that's increasing uh hugely increasing funding to the military at a time when you know the pentagon's one of the most damaging organizations worldwide in terms of it, just alone um climate change right you know massive emissions that we can't afford to uh burn through are being increased at a rate faster than the savings that they're making in the US on infrastructure spending that, you know, apparently is meant to be decreasing greenhouse gas emissions as being more than outweighed by the increased military capacity that they're bringing in, you know, increasing uh, warships and planes and all that kind of hardware platforms, as they say. But yeah, like, I'm, I'm glad you used the other the other I word, interoperability, right? Because that's what um, the US always loves to bring up in these discussions because for them that's a, a byword for what they'll refer to as security right they say that the more interoperability they have across the region that to them that translates as a, a u.s safe region right that, that feels to them as though there's some kind of i mean they wouldn't use words like this but kind of protected state or you know external client clientele that that has to rely on them because the more time that we spend integrating our military hardware with US, that's a choice, right? That's like a political choice that we're making. We don't have to make the decision to spend time and energy and money and uh, commit in trade trade terms and defense terms, uh, military compact terms and intelligence terms to uh, an entire military that is designed for this Um you know, fundamental interoperability with the US military. That's not how they have to operate. It would be um, if we had what we used to say that we had an independent foreign policy, it would actually be more, you know, common sense, it would be easier for us to not 
pick a, a brand for want of a comparison, right? <laughs> we don't have to operate that way. And I think the fact that that that's sort of flown under the radar for so long in these military exercises is quite quite telling, right? It's the fucked thing is that we're able to say we have an independent foreign policy by doing, you know, the complete opposite. And I think that the 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 flow on there is why does it matter? Why does it matter that New Zealand, a nation, cast adrift at you know the bottom of the South Pacific with a dubious settler colonial legacy, populations within it that are Pacific populations, um, whether because of Maori and Polynesian roots or Pacific roots, um, and I think that, like that is the the thing for me because the reason that New Zealand and and this is tied back in the historical thing. The reason New Zealand's able to have a nuclear-free policy is because strategically it doesn't matter. New Zealand was permitted to have uh, a nuclear-free pol- uh, policy by the US because strategically it doesn't matter. What does matter strategically is a large block of Pacific states, including New Zealand, that that are not part of uh, the US hegemonic military kind of complex. And so if you look at the mid-80s and our nuclear free movement, it, it points to it points to two things. One is that the complete sellout of of Pacific nations, where by signing up to, as I said, this toothless anti-nuclear treaty, New Zealand was able to be exclusively nuclear free. And I say exclusively because the vision that that promotes, promotes genuine welfare and anti-militarism is independence, obviously, for Pacific nations that are under, you know, imperial, uh, US imperialism. So the movement for a nuclear-free and independent Pacific movement, uh, Pacific poses a genuine threat to those ambitions. And New Zealand anti-nuclearism severed from its connections with the region is, is, is completely impotent. Likewise, New Zealand walking around and at NATO saying that it has an independent foreign policy means nothing when we're obviously behind closed doors doing all these things. Da, da, da. But the big issue is that it precludes other Pacific nations from actually pursuing their own independent foreign policy because New Zealand and Australia go to places like the Pacific Islands Forum and do double talk, you know, facilitate increased closeness with. Um, you know, what was ANZUS, uh, but is now, you know, Five Eyes or AUKUS or the Quad or, you know, various groupings in the quote-unquote Indo-Pacific, you know, this kind of superimposed term that means nothing to people in the region. And so... And is pretty that, new as well. Like, there's a region that's gone from being Asia-Pacific, right, to Indo-Pacific uh, in the last few years. It does. I mean, that itself, obviously, is yeah, to balance and work out you know, the reason that Asia is not in the Indo-Pacific, <laughs> that Asia is not in the Pacific is because, of course, it, the, the, the idea is to preclude, to preclude China from having a Pacific presence. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, we're, we're I, saying that this stuff is happening behind closed doors, but it's very much out in the open. Um, uh, like, yeah. if we're talking, uh, like... I hate to use the term, but like semiotical or some symbolist stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff happening that you just say, okay, so we're connected directly to the US military in this way uh, and also in this way and also in this way. And two or three of those, are, or even prima facie, are, are anti-China. You can't claim these things at, at the same time. You can't claim that you're looking to demilitarize while, uh, you know, some some media people in Australia are saying that the Australian government should go to war with the Solomons um, without really any significant pushback. Like an independent New Zealand would have been like, what the fuck are you doing? Like that's outrageous and would have pushed the the Australian government to come down on that like a ton of bricks. But it it was left to float. It was left as this uh, idea of of something that was plausible uh, and possible if the Solomons so dared uh, to discuss security with China, it's I, I, and again, come back to the the way it's covered and the way that we talk about it. The fact that so much of that is right in front of us 
and you can just stack it up side by side and go, okay, look at one, two, three, or five uh, different things. Then Ayamahuta says this, uh, Jacinda Ardern says this. That's just wrong. Like, that's just incorrect. Like, on, it's, those are two absolutely different things. But there's this, alongside this political kayfabe, is this a media or an investigatory um, apparatus that, that's meant to be holding this to account who choose to be impotent. And so I, I can't think of a media organization that's really talked about this other than a couple of opinion pieces um, from XMPs who were quickly kind of smeared as being pro-Putin or on the payroll of China by the established media. It's just everywhere. How, how do we how do we shift that? That's a, that's a question further down the line. But yeah, and then we've got, uh, you know, alongside the, this foreign policy stuff, we've got an increasing corporate structure um, or like entrepreneurial environment that is increasingly being tied into some of these systems. And, you know, we've had uh, people on the uh, podcast and on live stream previously talk about Rocket Lab um, and, and what it's been doing. They'll say they're not doing any military stuff, but like by the nature of what they're doing, it's intimately tied to that. You've got a whole range of data stuff uh, that who knows um, what's happening with that, but Five Eyes means that a lot of that stuff is shared. Yeah, I just, I don't know how the conversation is being so tightly controlled to the extent that it is. Absolutely. And I mean, to, to bring back your point about who's actually spoken about this and the, and the response. So, you know, Keith Locke, the, the former Green Party MP, came out publicly and said that, you know, effectively something like Longy would be turning his grave, you know, New Zealand's independent foreign policies focused on peacemaking and not war making and just in the going to speak at NATO is, is jeopardizing that. And that, you know, I think if you look at what he's, what he's tugging on and you look at, I think the thing is, is that he's playing to the better angels of the, of the anti-nuclear policy and our own liberal self-image, which is gratifying for the New Zealand public. And that's that same thing, which allows us to, to do no, no real action or simply pat ourselves on the back for doing really the bare minimum in, our, in the region and all, all the while associating with um, other, you know, Western imperial powers. And I think, you know, that's the thing. And then in terms of the media and Rocket Lab, I mean, the beautiful irony, if, if we if we take that same those same themes into the rocket lab discussion, is that it's that same confirmed nor deny of of American nuclear warships, where it's like, you know, we might have, you know, some kind of military, but we can't, we can't say. Or, but also, you know, the U.S. military gave us GPS, and well, we all love GPS, and like, and like it's that kind of thing, which is so so disheartening in in a media context. But I think we should also see it for what it is. It's playing up to, you know, our own sense of liberal gratification and kind of arresting on our laurels. Um, and if, if, you know, if we take this into the, the current moment and you look at how those same ideas are deployed in terms of, say, what actually would contribute to, um, you know, the welfare of our region and is in line with Pacific priorities, you know, the forum leaders have said, you know, in the Bukatawa and Boy declarations about their own um, kind of security priorities and the and the necessity of, say, climate change being the num you know seen as the number one threat to regional security, and then you look at what New Zealand's done. You know, when I was at COP twenty six and it was incredibly disheartened to see New Zealand's weak, nationally determined contribution from a green lack of minister. Kind of, yeah, exactly. You know. And so you, you look at that and you think, wow, um, what, how are we in a position where we do have, you know, a Green Party minister who's a minister for climate change has kind of these supposedly progressive values and is supposedly drawing on this, this independent foreign policy and New Zealand's action in the world um, to what extent that is myth-making or not. And then going to, say, Glasgow or not speaking out on these things it's, it's really disheartening because the whole thing, the slide towards, you know, towards the US, the slide towards things, it all, it all precludes, you know, what is a principled and um, Pacific-centred foreign policy, precludes an Indigenous foreign policy and, and, is, and is hastening the decline towards climate disaster and war quite, in, in quite real terms. 
Yeah, I think that's something we, like anyone doesn't really speak about too much is the way that New Zealand was like snap frozen in the 80s uh, for a whole range of ideological moments. Uh, and it, because it's never, the conversation has never moved forward from there en masse, there's never been, um, uh, I, I don't know, if significant effort from the from the right positions in order to move the public on these things since then means that you just hark back to it. And we had a chat with, in a kind of sideways but similar vein, with Kevin Hager a couple of years ago um, about his work at Forest and Birch and the way that people still think there's like clean rivers and like birds are okay and stuff. And it's, it's very much a part of the New Zealand psyche and the anti-nuclear stuff, and you know, whether it's true or not at this point, like they, it is something that they believe about being a new, quote unquote New Zealander. Um, and anti-nuclear is exactly the same. Uh, yeah, Myth-making, right. And, you know, giving women the vote and we have all these kind of um, things that have sort of kernels of truth to them that have, been spun out to various degrees based on different kind of historical contingencies and as you say what has been allowed to occur right in the case of the um, anti-nuclear position is a really interesting one but maybe just because you've got a more kind of historical bona fides than, than we do maybe you could um, chop up what what it is about the the anti-nuclear position because I mean there are probably as you say it, it does sort of draw on the bit of angels of our nature to say um, New Zealand has this proud history of X and Y and Z. Um, you know, it may be independent foreign policy, it may be anti-nuclearism, it may be human rights stuff um, that New Zealand, uh, you know, purports to have these kind of values, right? Um, I don't know the degree to which that's actually true, but we continually self-reify and self-impose these these values on it with a kind of New Zealand exceptionalist lens, I think, upon ourselves. But uh, to what degree do you think these things have have come out of actual historical um, contingencies and to what degree do you think they've been solely imposed later for, you know, you might say cynical terms or marketing strategy or what, what do you think that is? Well, we, we should look at two, two historical examples on which the New Zealand national myth-making about, you know, our anti-nuclear position, but more importantly about the independent foreign policy and our relationship to militarism, because it's not simply nuclearism, because as we can see, you can have this supposedly anti-nuclear um, position, but be a part of a military system, which in every other respect, you know, is nuclear, except on our soil, you know, so we can have, be interoperable with nuclear weapons. We can put our people on ships that have nukes on them, you know, and, and that's the kind of, yeah, but, but if we look at the two examples, one is under the Kirk government in the early 70s, where New Zealand sent a frigate to Moroa to protest, you know, French nuclear testing. And that was followed up by the, the ICJ case in which New Zealand and Australia were ultimately successful and, well, I think Princeton turned up and then they passed a judgment and then the uh, it was banned the atmospheric testing at Moroa, but obviously underground testing continued. The thing that we should look at about that is that there's a certain irony in New Zealand sending a warship to, you know, New Zealand as a settler colonial nation, sending a a warship to to French Polynesia, you know, so-called French Polynesia, Maho Hinui, as as a sign of protest. The second part of that is that the reason we're able to bring the case in the ICJ as New Zealand is because of our territories, because of the nuclear fallout, say, falling on the Cook Islands and Tukula, Niue. So we had stations put out there. So what I'm saying is it's possible to be anti-nuclear, but <laughs> but pro-imperialism or ne not necessarily anti-imperialism. And that's why the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement, um, which was a, you know, a grassroots coalition of interest groups, you know, green groups, trade union groups, and indigenous groups um, that sprang up from the mid-70s mid and culminated, it had its apex probably in 1983, was this radically different vision because it made the connection between continued nuclearism and colonisation. And it called on, say, New Zealand to support regional decolonization. When the Rainbow Warrior was sunk, you know, it had a banner on that said nuclear freedom. Sort of. And so that's the first point. The second part is obviously the Rainbow Warrior and then the mid-80s and then New Zealand's ultimate nuclear-free New Zealand policy, which I think went through in 87. So that came after 
the Treaty of Rarotonga, which was signed in 1985, and was, as I said before, briefly touched on, the Australian Labor Party came back into, into governments on an anti-nuclear mandate in 1983 and then colluded with the, the US in the later part of the um, 83 and early 84 to bring a anti-nuclear treaty that didn't preclude American interests. And I have a quote here that I will say in its entirety because it's recently been declassified um, and it really brings out a few of the, the points that I want to make broadly about why uh, an independent Pacific where every nation is able to pursue its own foreign policy provides you know, the way forward in our current moment. So the quote goes like this. It's, quite, it's a little bit long, but it is absolutely shocking. The context is that the um, head of the uh, State Department, EPA, East Asia and Pacific um, of, the, of the State Department came to Canberra to negotiate the Numea Convention, which is the, the convention that precluded the dumping of nuclear waste in high sea pockets of the of the um of the Pacific and that had, had by this stage gone into its kind of fourth year of negotiations and there was a massive impasse because uh, the, the US wouldn't uh, have anything precluding its high sea rights. So that was on the table, this anti-nuclear dumping treaty. And then there was also this, this suggestion by the Hawke government of having this toothless anti-nuclear treaty. So and so the quote reads. Australia is committed to advancing the concept of a South Pacific nuclear free zone. Australia cannot retreat from this commitment. It is a reflection not only of the Australian Labor Party's policy towards a nuclear free zone in the South Pacific or of the government's desire to be seen to respond to the genuine concerns of the countries of the region, not seen to be responding, um, but also of a growing awareness amongst the concerned electorate within Australia of important disarmament, arms control and nuclear matters. At the same time, nuclear issues are live issues in the South Pacific for a variety of reasons, not all of which are necessarily linked to French nuclear testing program or are at all. Pacific Island nuclear concerns are linked with the role of the oceans in their traditions and cultures and as a resource. Pacific Islanders in principle draw no real distinctions between Japanese proposals to dump waste material in the Northern Pacific, which is actually, that's happening again now with TEPCO after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster in 2011. Uh, I think, you know, upwards of a million tonnes of nuclear water, uh, nuclearised water is being stored. Pacific Islanders, yeah. U.S. proposes to sink obsolete nuclear submarines off California and the testing of nuclear weapons at Moro Atoll. It is all the Pacific Ocean, quote-unquote, our ocean. I think they meant that cynically. Most, however, are realistic enough to appreciate the principles of deterrence and the security provided by the ANZUS umbrella, although the majority would not want this to be publicly affirmed. But there are one or two ideologues, and one or two because of their colonial experiences, that lack sophistication who could develop proposals related to a nuclear-free South Pacific which could pose real problems for ANZUS partners. One important objective of Australia is to preempt such proposals of a more radical or impractical nature by drafting proposals that take into account the defence requirements of the region and of our allies. Ours is a pro process of damage containment. So this is the vision that New Zealand signed up to when it signed the treaty, and the idea was that New Zealand and Australia convinced the other Pacific nations that they should sign this as a first step towards a nuclear-free um, Pacific and that America would sign. Of course, America never signed. Um, and the most recent forum communicate actually says, again, you know, 40 years after the fact, um, we got to get we got to get these Americans to sign this, this nuclear anti-nuclear treaty. So that kind of collusion and coercion to get the Pacific to sign up to this limited vision is, is striking. Um, That's incredible. What, well, the thing I wanted to highlight is that you could read that back and you could substitute nuclearism for climate change because at the most recent Pacific Islands Forum, Vanuatu brought their case for an advisory opinion to the International Court of Justice on the obligation of states vis-a-vis -vis, you know, human rights and the rights of future generations of other nations to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And there was, there was murmurings on Friday at the ministerial dialogue prior to the heads of government meeting that Australia was watering down um, the ambition of that particular case to the ICJ. In a way, similarly, I mean, it's well documented that in 2019, when the Pacific Islands Forum gathered, the Morrison government watered down the communique um, that the Pacific nations agreed upon prior to um, COP26, obviously. But... And in that case, they removed all mention of coal by one and any mention of the word climate crisis and any, obviously, thing that would make them look bad or have any kind of obligations. 
And so we have this, this continued thing where, on the one hand, New Zealand and Australia go and go to these forum meetings or go into the region, which is, you know, it's important that Australia and New Zealand are present as a conduit for regional action. New Zealand is a member of, is a part of the Pacific, or rather should be, <laughs> um, uh, you know, a, a genuine Pacific partner. The problem is that we have these split loyalties where we kind of go in there because diplomats understand very well that New Zealand draws its international standing and place in the world from its ability to influence Pacific nations. You know, any claims to New Zealand's power do not come from the fact that we sell, you know, milk powder to China or have, you know, a part of the population that, you know, thinks that England is home. You know, that's it's completely irrelevant. It's not important. Our position in the world and the reason that, you know, we can be a part of Five Eyes, the reason that, you know, we can go to NATO is because we can play this kind of ambivalent role as New Ze- like American lieutenant or lapdog. And so New Zealand kind of leverages this position in these insidious ways over history. But all the while, the, 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 the punchline is that it precludes actual work towards economic self-resilience, climate action, and Pacific priorities like decolonization. And that's the kind of thing I wanted to draw on now when you look at RIMPAC. <laughs> Go back to RIMPAC. RIMPAC is obviously, uh, I want to make five points about RIMPAC first. And then I want to <laughs> say, then I want to say the last point, which will link back to this point about why it's bad diplomacy that New Zealand sign up to this vision. Okay, so... You know, the first point about RIMPAC is obviously that it's immoral because preparation for war, so-called war games, they are completely immoral because they use the resources and the planning um, for war that that take resources away from other pressing societal needs, you know, and it's a, a very expensive and they're often justified like this, you know, like, oh, New Zealand needs to invest lots of money in this, in this warship because we go to the Solomons or Vanuatu and provide disaster relief. That's exactly or, it. Yeah. And so it's this kind of, that's a greenwashing or humanitarian washing of the actual core business of, of military, which is either war or war preparation. Um, it's destructive in its own right. You mentioned before about the greenhouse gases that uh, the military industrial complex uh, kind of <laughs> releases, but it's, it's destructive for the greenhouse gases, but it's also because it cr- creates ecological devastation like on Kahualave, because it's like actually bombing bombing islands, destroying vulnerable ecosystems, killing whales and other cetaceans because of live fire drills and the, the sonar. Um, and then it's these kind of shows of strength, um, of force, are provocative and they're, they're meant to act as a deterrence. But uh, this is kind of Cold War ideology that's that's completely unfit for purpose in 2022 because not only does that kind of thing lock in the militarization that's happening um, and preclude deterrence because it escalates it doesn't deter but it's kind of you know contrary to the idea that the RIMPAC 2022 like it's uh, kind of catch line is capable adaptive partners um, it's not capable of uh, (laughs) because it's it's or or adaptive because it's outmoded and completely ill-equipped. It's uh it's the kind of product of like boomerish um, Cold War ideology, um, and it's completely ill-equipped to deal with a contemporary reality where kind of the global crises that we're facing require rapid de-escalation and uh, kind of the rest- restoration of the multilateralism of yesterday, the pr- pr- provocative preparatory militarism uh, is actually actively jeopardizing our ability to deal with those things. And so, yeah, that's the kind of thing where we're meant to be dealing with all these things. And yet, you know, we're preparing for a war in which there will be no winners. And there certainly won't be any Pacific winners because this, these war games, this double talk, this shutting down of this vision for a, you know, free and independent Pacific is is stopping any chance of there being a Pacific future worth saving. Truly, 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 truly. The Pacific 
is a sacrifice zone. You mentioned about before about the fact that the US is trying as hard as it can to to get people into the fold, you know, to to create a buffer zone. It's also climate collateral. So you have this disgusting situation where 1.5 degrees uh, is increasingly out of reach, not only because of the, the actions of the military, but certainly the breakdown of the geopolitical world order uh, caused by increasing um, militarization and the, the cutting off of these dialogues and multilateralism is certainly precluding any real chance of there being um, us keeping warming to 1.5 degrees. Nobody has any high hopes for COP27 in Egypt. And instead, we have this kind of buffer zone, military preparation zone, and it all combines to have a, yeah, a, a sacrifice zone for the Pacific. Yeah. And okay, now I'm back to the point. Why is it bad diplomacy that New Zealand signs up to this thing? It's because New Zealand has invested decades into the idea that New Zealand is a, a liberal, principled, um, you know, international partner that it supports international institutions. Pacific nations are not fucking stupid. They they will not tolerate an American lapdog in the Pacific. They're already disgusted that New Zealand spies on its allies through Five Eyes. It's just this thing where New Zealand thinks that it's pulling the wool over Pacific nations, that the public, the second that you know China, with China and Solomon's signed the security deal, that suddenly they think Pacific nations are just going to be swept aside by, you know, the new yellow peril. It's it's sinophobic. It completely erodes Pacific capacity for self-determination or, yeah, it's this paternalist, like, kind of bullshit. And I mean, so, it's beyond paternalist, right? It's it's a, an extension of the imperialism. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's just a continuation of that. We're, we're a colonial outpost where... The, the fingers of the hegemon um and it, it's bizarre to me that you know alongside this liberal progressive uh mythos about how we operate um within pacific that stuff somehow just flies under the radar because everyone in the pacific knows like they, they know what this means and you know they've been they've known that since uh, I mean, since it started happening, but it's become to the pointy end as soon as climate stuff started happening and the islands started going underwater and there's been no significant help from New Zealand or, or Australia to to pull things in line. It's It's been this watering down. It's been this um, weaponized incrementalism, uh, which the Pacific is forced to engage in because what other choice do they have? Um, you know, they can't, they can't just say, okay, cut off all the aid, New Zealand. Um, we'll somehow go it alone in this world that you've created to keep us subservient. Yeah, I think that, that, that point about weaponized incrementalism is really good. And the, the fostering of dependency through weaponized incrementalism is, is absolutely, that's, that's the most pertinent thing when you think about the cop. The, the the you know the UNFCCC process the sorry the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change process where where you know you've got the Kyoto Protocol the Paris thing and all of those things look the way they do because of the Pacific if we look to 1989 two significant things happened in 1989 number one the Pacific nations were the first in the world to meet at the highest level um, twice and then um, set down a lot of the principles for continued engagement. And then at the Rio Earth Summit with the Alliance of Small Island States, the 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 kind of 12-point, I think it's 12-point, maybe it's always a 12-point plan. The 12-point plan that they set down um, had a lot of the things that we're still arguing in it about today, about equitable carbon markets, about you know finance for compensation for loss and damage, about climate finance for adaptation, about overall mitigation. Um, and so they set down those things in 2004-15 with the Paris Agreement. The reason that 1.5 is, is the target is because the Higher Ambition Coalition spearheaded by 
um, the Marshall Islands set that in because 1.5 degrees is is the the threshold for coral death and increased cyclones. The reason we know that is because throughout the past 20 years, Pacific nations have been at the forefront of research about climate vulnerabilities. But the most other thing that happened in 1989 is that New Zealand External Intelligence Bureau commissioned a report called something like the effect of sea level rise on Pacific, you know, Pacific Islands, small nations or something like that. And so New Zealand knew fucking damn well in, in, in the late 80s what was going to happen. And so the weaponized incrementalism and the fostering of dependence through this process is beyond cynical. It's, it's immoral and it should be called out for that, especially when, you know, our overall emissions have risen over that period. Um, I think that that, you know, that's, that's, that's a scourge. It's, that's terrible. But the thing I want to say is that this is, this is bad foreign policy. It's bad foreign policy because not only, like it's immoral. Sure. Absolutely. It's completely immoral, but it's also self-sabotage for New Zealand because it's riding ourselves out of, you know, our own position in the Pacific by facilitating our own demise and precluding, you know, the third way effectively between these two, between the increasing polarization between, you know, and and the accelerating climate crisis. Yeah, Yeah, that's really well put. Thanks, Marco. That's awesome. Um, It's amazing, eh? You go back 30 years and it's almost like, the more the more things change, the more this the more they stay the same, right? Like we have made this kind of um, darkly cynical point, I suppose, before about um, maybe when Jacinda said that climate change is our nuclear free moment, she wasn't lying. Like maybe in the exact same way, uh, because it doesn't matter, she can do nothing about it and get away with it, um, which is what we meant at the time. <laughs> um, so, what's the alternative? I guess is what I want to say. Like we're talking about regionalism and. New Zealand acting as a kind of uh, cynical international uh, vessel, I guess, for interests that go against um, regional solidarity and supporting Pacific Island nations that need it um, and being a good neighbour, basically. What would the alternative be? Like, you've already brought up the Marshall Islands, good work in Vanuatu. Like, what would what would supporting those kind of uh, players on the world stage look like different to what we're doing now? Well, we can draw on historical examples. I mean, sorry, I'll always go to the historical examples. That's <laughs> what I know. It's but, good. Well, we, we, as a catalogue of human ambition, uh, we, we can actually say that this happened. And, and, and New Zealand did act in some ways in, in the past to be good Pacific natives. And so I mentioned briefly the SPREP Convention and kind of juxtapose it with the um, Treaty of Rarotonga. So the... SPREP convention is the kind of the neglected cousin of the of the Treaty of Rarotonga. Treaty of Rarotonga is about nuclear weapons testing mainly, and it's angled at France. The SPREP convention or the Namir convention was aimed at Japan, who in 1979 um, kind of tabled plans to um, dump low-level nuclear waste in an area north of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Um, in the Marianas Trench, effectively. So um, the idea is that, you know, deepest point on Earth, we're going to dump this this nuclear waste, um, it'll be all good. So Pacific Nations, at, at the time, were getting together under the auspices of the United Nations Environmental Program to, to draft a convention that would give legal backing to um, SPREP, which is the South, South Pacific Regional Environment Program. And... As part of that, they had to draft country reports, come up with kind of topic reviews about certain areas and kind of come up with A, a declaration, and then B, an action plan of how to meet that. So this is kind of a global process and it was happening in in the Pacific at the time. Of course, the first thing (laughs) that Pacific Nations did when they got together and did this declaration is that they put clauses in it that ban nuclear testing and ban nuclear waste dumping. And the intention was that that if they put this in law, even if Japan wasn't a party to it, that they would it would, you know, stop Japan from dumping. 
But of course, it caused massive headaches for people that were going to be signatories to it, i.e. the United States and i.e. France. And so and it also caused headaches for New Zealand and Australia, who had to put parts of their exclusive economic zone. So, you know, the, the third convention on the law of the sea was concluded in 1982. So this process was started after 1982 as well. And so it's, it's all about this kind of new area of, of international law, you know, the law of the sea and exclusive economic zones and, and who can do what where. And so the kind of nations get together in January of 1983, 18 Pacific nations, I think, um, France, Australia, Japan's an observer. UK is there because of Pitcairn. <laughs> and, um, then, of course, they stonewall until the, the meeting of the London Dumping Convention, which is the, the, the global agreement that facilitates the dumping of low-level nuclear waste. You can't dump high-level nuclear waste. But the UK is the biggest dumper of low-level nuclear waste. And, of course, they don't want this kind of little regional agreement to stop their big, their big international agreement. Um, and so, sorry, when I'm talking about this all the time, just think about climate change, think about issues of transboundary harm, think about, you know, the obligations of states vis-a-vis, you know, other states and things like that, because the, the parallels to the reason why we're talking about this in terms of regionalism, in terms of, you know, climate change and, and Pacific nations own priorities. The, the parallel, sorry, I made that clear at the start, not halfway through the story. But it took f- five meetings over four years um, to finalise this because of, because of three issues. One, nuclear testing. Two, nuclear dumping. But three, the convention area, where this, the Pacific plans to, to ban nuclear waste dumping would happen. And, of course, if you look at the 200-mile exclusive economic zones of the Pacific, one of which was just actually finalised at the last forum between Fiji and the Solomons, which is really important because that little pocket in there was one of the areas that was hypothetically eligible for nuclear waste dumping. But it's also the the kind of convergence zone of three tectonic plates, and it's a highly, highly kind of um, charged area with big abyssal currents and and like um, anhydrite chimneys. You know the the under you know you see underwater and they're just shooting up the thing, and there's all of these mussels that that feed off the. Um, they have bacteria in them that can eat the chemicals or whatever. And so you've got this crazy, crazy oceanographic forces. You've got this crazy kind of subseabed stuff. And no one knows about this, of course. Yeah, you know, just drop some nuclear weapons in there, mate. Yeah, well, this is the whole thing, you know. It's yeah. like hypothetically this area was eligible for dumping and um, and we don't know much about the area. It had only been charted by like a, a Japanese team a, a few years earlier. And so... <laughs> And so you've got these air, like five or something areas that are hypothetically eligible for nuclear waste. And so eventually what New Zealand did was they manufactured a compromise where they kind of, on, on the one hand, on behalf of the Pacific nations to preclude nuclear waste dumping in areas of the high sea pockets, to create a convention area that was like a picture frame that filled the whole of it as opposed to leaving out these little pockets. Because they understood that if you know you dump the nuclear waste, it's going to create transboundary harm, and they they provided scientific arguments to, to the US because the US wouldn't accept kind of moral arguments or arguments about you know that were not un, supposedly unprovable by science about the effect of nuclear waste and bioaccumulation or and you know the effect on people nuclear waste dumping, and so in that case, New Zealand provided a conduit for Pacific Pacific ideas about the ocean and the importance of ocean in our cultures and translated them to the, the United States. Um, and it was done by um, the Commission for the Environment, which was a, was a, was a body that still exists, um, and then also the uh, elements of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And in and, and partnership with the South Pacific Regional Environmental Programme, to provide these arguments to the United States, which were ultimately accepted. But the reason that the scientific arguments were accepted is because at the time, America understood that if they were not to budge on this issue, that Pacific nations would come together and ban the transit of nuclear warships in the region. And so it's this double thing where New Zealand can can help provide legal capacity, provide 
um, advocacy in areas where New Zealand has kind of relationships. Because, you know, Pacific nations can't, couldn't just walk up to the Pentagon. But you had Australia and New Zealand going and going and meeting with, you know, the, the head of the Pacific Islands fleet, for example. But then there's this other thing of, of a very strong regionalism that's principled and based in, um, on Pacific priorities and has Pacific island conceptions about the ocean and stuff at its heart. And so, you know, you can't have Pacific islands regionalism without those principles at, at its heart. So the parallels with the current moment are very clear, you know, climate change and war making as a direct threat to the life support system of the Moana continent. It's, it's an assault on nature, both of those things. The regionalism of the Pacific is absolutely vital because without it, Pacific nations will be divided and conquered. And so that this, the salience of that story about the Script Convention and the Mir Convention is twofold. One, it shows the role of good partners, good allies. And two, it shows the overall kind of circumstance which creates the, the necessity of superpowers to find compromise. Yeah. How do we move towards that facilitatory kind of relationship from what seems to have just become gatekeeping of the Pacific and the like in the worst sense? How do we how do we shift that among our, our decision makers? Because they they obviously know this stuff, you know, like this stuff exists uh within their strategic outlook. They I'm not going to like be so naive to think they don't understand history, um, and that's why they don't act um, in a way that we agree with. So you know, there's there's some level on which there's like we don't give a shit. Um, we we're gonna we're on the US side. That's just how it is. Despite all of that, how do we shift them? How do we pull them back towards? Well, you know, like you know, you've said it a lot, but a a moral standing as a, a member of the Pacific, just as, as a starting point, you know, that's, that's less difficult to do, but take that further to be a, a voice or amplifier for the Pacific in the way that you outlined there. Well, I mean, that's the, so, yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I, I don't think that anybody in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is naive. I spend my whole time researching, you know, declassified, documents that they wrote you know like that's the I, I think a lot of good work was done by those people I think that they're dominated by a kind of real politic view of the world I think that they always try and find and it's been happening since the 60s you know when New Zealand ramped up its aid program yeah uh, all of the kind of documents about that we'll talk about you know building capacity in the region and stuff like that but in the in the confidential versions it will always say below that the reason we need to build capacity, the reason we need to, you know, create jobs, you know, not, not that anyone in the Pacific is unemployed uh, in subsistence agriculture, but the reason we need to do that is because they think that without that, these these nations will become unstable, politically unstable, and that they could, for example, drift towards communism, which was obviously in a Cold War context, the whole thing. So you have this thing where I don't think they're stupid. I think that they believe in a certain real politic. So my answer, my, my, my challenge to them is to have a clear-eyed understanding of just how successful our independent foreign policy has been. So even though, and imagine how much more successful it could be if it was substantive. And so the thing that, if, our, if your listeners want to read something, they can read Gerald Hensley's kind of uh, reminisces about the anti-nuclear movement. And that, that he's a, was a high-ranking high diplomat at the time. His kind of thing is completely coloured by, by real politic, by the need to kind of, um, you know, ward off communism and, and towards the Western alliance and believing in Western, you know, political liberal values, obviously none of which really exist <laughs> in the way, which, well, even if they existed then, they certainly fucking don't exist now. Um, and so, you know, I would say to him, he was obviously sceptical at the time about New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy and, and, and believed in the principles of deterrence. He kind of believed and he thought that the ends of the ANZUS alliance would mean New Zealand's kind of would lead to New Zealand being completely irrelevant 
in the in the in the world stage. But I would say it's the complete opposite. I would ask people, why do you think that Jacinda can go and speak on, you know, the Letterman show or whatever, you know? What why can what what is this other way that we, we charted kind of unintentionally? Because it was un, unintentional. We have to remember that David Longy himself was an opportunist. He was not a committed anti-nuclearist. The reason that New Zealand turned away that that warship in 1984 in the Tuvalu Forum is because he was out of contact and the anti-nuclear members within his own caucus, i.e. like Richard Preble and Helen Clark, that they just made the call on his behalf. He wasn't able to be reached. And other people say that he brokered a deal where he let those people have their kind of way, ipso facto, because he wanted to pursue these um, neoliberal economic reforms. And so we have to look that there's the opportunity of of that. And so, yeah, I think that's the, that's the, that's the answer, the antidote to the, the kind of cynical real politic is to ask what, what that has got in nations like Australia, nations like the US, what has that meant for their relationships with the world? And look what our own situation, our own Pacific identity, our own Indigenous identity can mean for a principled, you know, Pacific-centred foreign policy with the principle of deterity at its heart. What, what does it actually look like and what are the opportunities, you know? Fantastic. And, and if people want to kind of read more about it or, or get involved with um, the movement or activism, where can, where can they look, like on an individual level? So bringing this back to, to RIMPAC, because one thing that New Zealand could obviously do in pursuing this is to opt out of this kind of out of war making um, as, as a first step. Uh, I, honestly, I don't think it'll kill us. And if anything, it'll stop us killing other people. <laughs> you know that they can they can they can sign our petition at um, you know peace movement Aotearoa. They can get on board the Cancer Impact Coalition, which involves smaller kind of more local peace action groups in in Aotearoa, like Peace Movement Wellington, Peace Movement Aotearoa. They can follow um, our commentary on it with um, from Tikawaka New Zealand Alternative, and they can also look at um, things that are happening throughout the region. For example, in Hawaii, there's obviously Manifold um, demonstrations happening um, about RIMPAC all the time. There's uh, webinars on next week, which I'll pop. Um, I'll send you guys to pop in the in the description. Obviously, con- kind of conscious this is that's time sensitive, but um, I encourage everyone to to think. You know, we've been talking about RIMPAC in its context, its broader context of imperialism in the Pacific and New Zealand's role in the world um no none of us activists believe that impact will be cancelled this year or the year after next you know but it's a it's a conduit for the vision that we believe in which is you know a free and independent pacific and our true belief that without a free and independent pacific there's no pacific future worth saving because things like impact the increasing fraught geopolitical situation is sending the region down yeah, closer towards war or climate disaster or both. And so when you get involved, it doesn't necessarily have to be about cancer impact. It certainly can be. You can use impact as your kind of lens onto these broader issues of domination, hegemony, and the alternative Pacific future that we want. And so that's what I kind of want to leave our listeners with. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Marco. It's uh, been an honour to have you on. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. We'll, um, we'll drop those links into the into the summary um, so you can follow those through if you want to read up more, if you want to get involved. Uh, yeah, do so. Um, it's becoming more and more important to get involved in direct activism. And, you know, one thing that every activist group needs more of is, is just people. Uh, it needs people standing up. It needs people to do things, um, you know, whether that's signing a petition, doing some admin, writing something, turning up uh, to a protest, um, helping to organise events. Without people, the, the movement um, tends to fall over. So get involved. See, see, see what you can do from there. Did you have any um, other final points that you wanted to make, Marco? Or... 
the only thing I'd like to say, yeah, really, to wrap up is is that we have right now um, our last and best chance to fulfill our diplomatic potential as Aotearoa. All right. That's been another episode uh, of One of 200, uh, bringing you some independent media, um, independent experts, uh, some viewpoints that you, you don't generally hear uh, from our established media uh, or, or even places like uh, the spin-off or, or newsroom. Real pleasure to have Marco on this evening. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. All our normal links are in the summary. If you want to reach out and support us, then that option is also available. Uh, but I think most importantly for an episode like this, share it around, get people to listen uh, to to what Marco has been talking about, uh, send some of the links that he's provided uh, to your friends and family as well. Uh, and yeah, let's get this word of mouth going uh, on some of this stuff. Thanks very much for listening. We'll catch you on the weekend. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your